may turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65. Last week we did just verse 1. Today I'm hoping to get through verse 16, and then next week we'll finish up Isaiah chapter 65, if all goes according to plan. It doesn't always. In Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, the last two chapters of Isaiah, the Lord is responding to a quite extended prayer of Isaiah, which began in chapter 63 and verse 7, continues through all of chapter 64. What you need to know by way of background is Isaiah's prayer is an adaptation of a very old prayer. It's a prayer found in Genesis. It's really found all the way through Revelation. Now, it kind of takes on different forms, but it's of the genre where there's some, some cry to the Lord, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Now, even the righteous who are suffering, if they're really righteous, they would also say, I'm not righteous in myself. I'm also a sinner, and I also am in need of grace. I also am in need of forgiveness. But yet there's a difference between those that aren't at all, express no interest in God, or express no interest in how he may forgive, how that is accomplished, and those who do. So Isaiah's prayer is along those lines. Abraham prayed this prayer. Abraham was visited by three, three visitors, two uh, angelic visitors appearing in the form of a man, and then the Lord also appearing in the form of a man. So it's a pre-incarnate Christ. It's not Christ who became a man in Luke's gospel or in the four gospels, but it's Christ when he, was, uh, he appeared as a man, though he wasn't actually a man on occasion in the Old Testament. And Abraham was told that the Lord uh, was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's response is this. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city of Sodom. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's Abraham's version of a prayer that Isaiah one day will pray. Abraham wasn't the only one. Moses and Aaron prayed this prayer. This was in an incident where there was a rebellion against Moses and a rebellion against Aaron. The man, the leader was Korah, and the Lord said this regarding the rebellion. He spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation, Israel that I may consume them in a moment. And then Moses and Aaron prayed the prayer. They fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? That's Isaiah's prayer. What about the few? Will you be angry with all of Israel? Is there no relief? How long will you afflict us? David's Lament Psalms, uh, Darwin had us recite or listen to a, saw, a song based on Isaiah, or uh, Psalm 63. I don't know that that classifies as a lament psalm. I'm not sure if it was a lament, but he was definitely crying out to God. And in his crying out, in that psalm and other psalms, there are many times David does lament. 
The Psalms is the book that I typically would point somebody to that's going through a difficult time. and Maybe they're finding it hard to pray. I would tell them, go to the Psalms. Because the Psalms uh, encompass every experience of life. Whether you're going through a very blessed time where you're celebrating the goodness of God and his mercy in your life. Or whether you're going through a dark valley. There's psalms for, those, there, psalms for that occasion as well. Psalms encompass every aspect of life. And it's good that we would pray the psalms. But before we look at the way Isaiah prays this prayer and begin applying it to ourselves, which I think we can do, I think there's things Isaiah says that David says, Abraham and Moses and Aaron, things that they all say to the Lord that at some time or another is going to be true in your own heart. Where you're wanting to say the same things. And maybe you don't have the words for it. And it would help you to read it from scripture. But before we ever get to application. There's this. It is important to understand Isaiah's prayer. In its own original context. That is to interpret it. His prayer. In its own original context. Before we adapt his sentiments to our prayer. See the Bible is is for us. But it's also to understand what God is doing in its own context at that given time. And we don't do it here, I don't think, I don't think that's a problem here. But probably in our, if you've been around for very long, you probably are familiar with the type of a Bible study where a passage is looked at and the question that's bantered about is what does it mean to you? But before we ever get to what does it mean to you, we ought to find out what it meant originally. If you, you can apply it eventually to your situation. I think the Holy Spirit does that. But first, we should labor to understand what it meant the first time. <coughs> so, Isaiah's prayer is firstly and uniquely a prayer and a lament for the nation of Israel. He's praying what he wants all of Israel to pray. He's lamenting the way he wants all of Israel to lament. He's asking questions that he wants all of Israel to ask. And they're not. So it's a uniquely, uh, the, the context is uniquely Israeli. It pertains to Israel. In our sins we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? We've looked at that verse several times. Then in chapter 64 later, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And that's how he ends his prayer, with these questions. He's asking the questions he wants all of Israel to ask. He doesn't know how God is going to resolve his relationship with an apostate Israel. What Isaiah is witnessing is exactly what Moses prophesied would happen. I don't know the extent to which Isaiah realizes what he's witnessing is what Moses prophesied. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Even if he understands, yes, I know Moses sang that song. I know Moses was talking about my situation. But even if you know scripture addresses it, it doesn't mean that it's not difficult when you're there. And so Isaiah is struggling, and he's going to get a response from the Lord, a response which Paul later, 750 years later, 
will explain and, and, and give us greater light on than what even Isaiah had. So let's look at how this all plays out. Here's what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, Moses dies. So he's very near his death. In chapter 32, he sings a song, which is not the kind of a song you would ever think to be sung. It doesn't sound like a song. It's hard to imagine how you would sing it, but it's called a song. In chapter 33, then he pronounces blessings upon the tribes of Israel. And then in chapter 34, he dies. Well, in chapter, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation simply because we're doing, I'm going to do some larger swaths of scripture, bigger passages. We're not here to use a microscope to figure out nuance of word and meaning. It's just to get the big picture idea. The New Living Translation is pretty good at that because it's, uh, its goal is to be very readable, very understandable the first time through. So in the New Living Translation, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is recounting all that God has done for his people. God has provided for them, he's blessed them, he's delivered them, he's led them. Now Moses, he's 120 years old, he's going to die in two chapters, however long that is, it's not long. And in spite of all that God has done, Moses says this, But Israel soon became fat and unruly. The people grew heavy, plump, and stuffed. Then they abandoned the God who made them. They made light of the rock of their salvation. They stirred up his jealousy by worshiping foreign gods. They provoked his fury with detestable deeds. They offered sacrifices to demons, which are not God, to gods which they had not known before, to new gods only recently arrived, to gods their ancestors had never feared. That's not the right response to a God who has done so much for you. He goes on. He's not done. You neglected the rock who had fathered you. You forgot the God who had given you birth. The Lord saw this and drew back, provoked to anger by his own sons and daughters. He said, I will abandon them. Then see what becomes of them. For they are a twisted generation, children without integrity. They have roused my jealousy by worshiping things that are not God. They have provoked my anger with their useless idols. Now I will rouse their jealousy through people who are not even a people. I will provoke their anger through the foolish Gentiles. This is such an important passage of scripture. This is a lens through which I view all of scripture on some level. All of Scripture is, is kind of packed into verse 21 of Deuteronomy chapter 32. Because most of the Old Testament is this story, this narrative. They roused the Lord's jealousy by worshiping things that are not God. They provoked the Lord's anger with their useless idols. Most of the New Testament, after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ... So what we would call uh, all the epistles of the church, Acts of the Apostles, most of the New Testament is the Lord rousing Israel's jealousy through a people who are not a people. Most of the New Testament is the Lord provoking Israel's anger through foolish Gentiles. The Old Testament and the New Testament are captured in verse 21. And I know this is a significant verse because Paul quotes it. Paul's going to explain what 
Moses prophesied way back right before he died. So here's the way Paul takes that and explains it. This is in Romans chapter 10. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. How are they declared righteous? How are you justified? They don't understand God's way of making people right. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. How are you made right with God? By believing in the one God sent. By believing in the one who kept the law perfectly all the time. It's by faith in Christ that you're justified. But they are clinging to their own way of getting right. And they're working hard. And they're obeying laws. And they're adding traditions. And then they look at how well they keep those and they think, I'm doing it better than you are. So if anybody's got a chance to be in the kingdom of heaven, it must be me. But that's not the way you're made right with God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10. And so they're lost in Romans chapter 10. Paul says, I ask, did the people of Israel really understand this? Do they understand that your righteousness isn't achieved by your performance? It's achieved by what Christ did in your place? Do they understand that? And Paul answers his own question. What do you think the answer is? The answer is, yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through a people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. Do you, realize, you understand what's taking place there? Gentiles are placing their faith in Christ. They're not trying to keep Mosaic law. They're not keeping to the traditions of the fathers. They don't know anything about Mosaic law. And yet Gentiles in Paul's ministry in droves are placing faith in Christ and believing that Christ accomplished salvation for all who believe. And in doing that, the Lord is rousing Israel's jealousy Provoking them to anger, just like Moses said would happen. And then Paul says, And later, Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by a people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, All day long I opened my arms to them. But they were disobedient and rebellious. That's where we're at in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 65. So based upon what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, or sang in Deuteronomy 32, based upon the way the Lord responds to Isaiah in chapter 65, this is all part of the redemptive plan. It's all being accomplished just like he said it would be accomplished. Romans 11. I asked them. Has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. 
I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. The church, in my understanding of Scripture, is not Israel. The church is saved by the same faith of Abraham as Israel will ever be saved by faith. It requires faith. I don't care what covenant, what time period you live in, you're saved by faith in what God has promised and revealed. And, and the blessing of faith is accomplished in the person and the work of Christ dying on a cross, living a perfect life, dying on a cross, being resurrected the third day, and ascending to the Father in heaven. Salvation is the same always. But Paul says, look, there's all, God hasn't completely rejected Israel. I'm an Israelite. I believe Christ is Messiah. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. There's always a remnant according to grace. That's in Romans chapter 11 too. God always has a remnant according to grace. Is that all we're ever going to get out of Israel is a remnant? Okay, we have a remnant. Paul's proof we have a remnant. Is that all we're going to get? Paul asks another question. Again, I ask, did they, did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to Gentiles to make Israel envious. Again, he's establishing what Moses said. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will be their full how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I think Paul teaches there's a day where it's not going to be a remnant of Israel. It's going to be Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, embracing and confessing and recognize when he comes in the, in the, uh, with the, the glory of heaven, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn because they will recognize they rejected their Messiah the first time. And a nation will be born in a day. So, we take all this with this perspective, understanding that God is accomplishing his purposes. He's provoking Israel to jealousy. They provoked him to jealousy. He's provoking them to jealousy by extending salvation to Gentiles who were in faith, believing, not working for anything. They're just believing Christ. That's what's happening. Now let's go back to Isaiah's, uh, the response Isaiah gets to his prayer. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord, Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? The Lord starts his answer this way. I've got ready to be in the English Standard Version, really hard to read because there's no reason for it to be there. I don't think it helps. Uh, there's no basis in the Hebrew for it. We looked at that last week. The Lord says, in response to, will you restrain yourself? Will you keep silent? The Lord says, I was sought, by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, this is literal, King James, behold me, behold me to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. We spent time on that last week, and I want to rehash all of that. Verse 1 is about the Gentiles. Verse 2 is about Israel. And Paul, 
unpack that. We looked at that in Romans. So what we have are Gentiles are finding God even though they're not asking for God and they're not seeking God. They've got no past with God. Not the God who, cre- who created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't mean they're not religious in their own selfish, deceived ways, but they have no relationship with God. They're not seeking or asking, but they're finding. They're finding God. By contrast, Israel is not finding God, even though they've been given every advantage from the beginning. God has revealed himself to them uh, in his glory, in his word, in the law, in the prophets, in all that God has done for them and providing for them and leading them, directing them, correcting them, and all that he's done, in spite of all of that, Israel's still not finding. And Gentiles are which seems like a terrible perplexity, a terrible mystery. So what's the point in the Lord responding to Isaiah's questions with this, this paradox? And the point is this, the fact that the Lord is being found by someone, in this case Gentiles, the fact that the Lord is being found demonstrates he has not ceased caring, nor has he abandoned his redemptive purpose. The fact that some are finding is proof that he's accomplishing his purpose. He's accomplishing exactly what he told Moses he was going to do. I'm going to provoke my people to jealousy and anger by saving Gentiles who just believe what I say who just believe in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's evidence. Isaiah's thinking that God somehow has left and he's not caring. He's abandoned them. And and the Lord's saying nothing could be further from the truth. Even Gentiles who aren't asking or seeking are finding. So what does that say about Israel? In fact... The Lord says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. There have been any number of instances in Isaiah where the way it unfolds and what Scripture says is positively fascinating. Probably my own biggest surprise was when the Lord basically said, you just keep reminding me about what I said. You just keep bringing it back to me. You know, if I promise that you just keep rehearsing it back to me, it's like pester me. It's like bug me, because if I promised it, it's not, not going to happen. So just remind me. Feel free to do that. Here's something else that is very shocking, but I'm not sure if you understand how shocking it is. Because in Scripture, what you find is kind of like in the prayer or the psalm that Darwin already had us look at, Psalm 63. But in Scripture, what you have are people who they lift their hands up to God. Moses is a good example. This is in the plagues of Egypt. Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, All right, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. This is common in Scripture. 
Moses says, you're going to know that this is all the Lord's doing. I'm going to go out. I'm going to stretch out my hands to God, and I'm going to plead for him to let this plague pass. And the plague passes. Moses isn't the only one. David, in this time, at Psalm 143, says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Have you ever prayed that kind of a prayer where you stretch out your hands to God and say, God, there's, there's no solution to my, to my situation, my circumstances. You stretch out your hands. God, I'm at your mercy. God, I need you to intercede. Uh, I mean, my most vivid experience or the time that ever happened was when Ryan was born because we'd had a stillborn a, year, a couple years before that. And so Ryan was born and it seemed like there were some problems. And I remember, I didn't exactly maybe stretch out my hands like this, but I was on my face before God. And I'm like, God, another child? Like, am I going to lose another child? You know, and there was a song that ministered that really helped me. But there's times you stretch out your hands to God and say, there's no hope unless you extend mercy. That's David's prayer. That's Solomon's prayer. Solomon builds the temple, beautiful temple to the glory of God, and he stretches out his hands to the heavens and says, oh God, there's no God like you. And the very heavens can't contain you, much less this temple. But God, be honored by this temple. He stretches out his hands. Ezra, after the exile, after they come back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, Ezra is confronted with sin again in Israel, and he stretches out his hands to God. God, the sin problem is no more solved after being exiled to Babylon than it is now. I mean, we've still got the same problem. And in each case, they're stretching out their hands to God. Do you understand what's happening in Isaiah 65? God is stretching out his hands to his people. He's the one stretching out his hands. Who does that? It's not Israel crying out to God. It's God crying out to his people, Israel. That they would receive him. They would recognize him for being the one who cares for them. Who loves them more than they'll ever understand. And they don't understand. But the Lord is stretching out his hands all day to his people who are rebellious. This reminds me of a song that came out in 1985. If I read what I read on the internet correctly, it's, it's still the longest running number one song on Christian charts ever. I think it was number one on the Christian charts for 13 weeks. It was done by Benny Hester. Because it was a popular song back then, it's not surprising that the song has been redone several times by other groups, but I think Benny Hester did it right. Now, Benny Hester's song, like a lot of songs or like a lot of books, uh, part of it I really like and part of it I'm like, I wouldn't have said it that way. I don't think it's very accurate. So I'm not, I can't endorse the entire song, but it captures some of the emotion that I think is meant to be captured rather than just reading Isaiah 65, I spread out my hands and you didn't come. I think you need to experience the affection and the emotion behind what God is saying in verse 2. So there's a song done. It's based on the prodigal son story, a parable that Jesus told. And it really strikes me now, more than ever before, that this is a parable that needs to be interpreted, not applied. This parable is not about my coming to Christ. This parable is about God and Israel. 
and there's two sons. And the prodigal son who goes astray are the sinners and the tax collectors and the Jews that really didn't keep the law any longer, and they're the ones that are being embraced. The older son, who's standoffish, represents the the Jewish leadership and the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees who still are clinging to their own righteousness. That story, it's not my story. I had no relationship with God. I wasn't raised with all those blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not my tradition. But when Jesus tells that story, he's not talking about Gentiles, about how every individual sinner comes to faith in Christ and a restoration with God. He's talking about Israel. Because they have the past. It's Israel that that went astray and abandoned the Lord. And then in this parable, the prodigal son comes home. A prodigal Israel comes home. I'm going to play a little bit of the the song, the first 60 seconds or so. It's going to start off with a... song it's based on Isaiah chapter 65 God stretching out his hands to his people and to this day that child has not come home there's always a remnant Paul says I'm a remnant I'm proof that God has not forsaken his people but as a nation they've not come home I believe there's a day the nation will come home when God's still stretching out his hands and he will embrace Israel in his arms his firstborn the one that he called above all the nations of the earth simply because of his grace, not because of their worthiness. He talks about Israel who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Uh, Two words there, the word way and the word devices. The word devices is generally that word in the Hebrew. It's usually translated thoughts. So they walk in their own way, uh, not good, following their own thoughts. I'm not sure why they chose the word devices. I think it's very interesting what's said there in light of the pronouncement that goes back to chapter 55, verses 6 to 9. So flip back just a couple pages in your Bible and look at what the Lord announced in Isaiah chapter 55. Famous verses. 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You've got to forsake your way. You've got to abandon your thoughts. But of Israel it says they walk in a way that's not good and they're following their thoughts. They're going their way. They're going to do it their way. Well, what are their thoughts? Oh, I guess this thought. Israel's sin is common to man. Namely, we want God on our own terms. As bad as Israel is in this story, it's, it's the common refrain of all mankind. Apart from the grace of God, we want God our way. Most people, given the right set of circumstances, will ask for help. When things are down, when the chips are down, we ask God for help. But while we may ask God for help, most people aren't looking to be rescued. God really is not a helping God, he's a rescuing God. Salvation requires a rescue, not just help. Help means uh, I've got some aspect of my life that I need help with, but I still want to have control over my schedule, my life, my priorities, what I do, what I don't do. I still want control, but I need help. No, God rescues. Because we need more than help, we need rescued. I remember Petra, uh, we saw him in concert, I don't know if Cindy was there, I don't know who I went with, but I saw Petra concert way back in the day, and I remember uh, talking on stage, the guy who was on stage said, you know, a lot of people think Christianity is a crutch. It's like Christianity is not a crutch, it's a stretcher. Because you don't limp into heaven, you get carried into heaven. If God's grace doesn't carry you into heaven, you'll never make it. It's more than a crutch. It's a stretcher. God does more than help. He rescues. Now, the specifics of what are they thinking? They're following their own thoughts. What are their thoughts? Well, they're enumerated for us. Verse 3, there are people who provoke me to my face continually. This is the way they're going. And this is in light of chapter 64 and and the second part of verse 5. If you'll remember that verse says, behold, you were angry and we sinned. And I told you, that's not a statement about God's anger. That's a statement about their sin. The behold is, it's not surprising that God is angry at sin. What is surprising is that Israel knows God is angry at sin and they keep sinning. I know God doesn't, isn't pleased by this and I've determined that's the way I'm going to live my life. So they provoke me to my face continually. So God is going to provoke them by extending salvation to Gentiles who aren't even seeking and they're going to embrace Christ by faith. Also in verse five or verse 3, they're sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. And that's in light of Exodus chapter 20. Because in Exodus chapter 20, God's, does God prescribe worship for Israel? Yes, he does. He makes it very clear. You're going to worship me this way. These are the sacrifices. This is the place. Uh, it's going to be in the, in the tabernacle initially. Then it's going to be in the temple. The Lord's blessing will be on that. But God prescribes how he is to be worshipped. And when you build an altar, he says you're going to use unhewn stones. But you know what? They've decided they're going to make an offering on bricks. They're not going to build an altar like God says. And they're not going to worship only in one place in Jerusalem. They're going to sacrifice in their gardens. It's a lot more convenient, and more people are interested in that anyway. We find it fulfilling. We find it satisfying. It seems good to us. 
We don't get to worship God the way that seems good to us. We're not worshiping God if we're doing that. We worship His way, the way He has prescribed. Verse 4 talks about, here's their thinking. They sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. This is in their desire to communicate with the dead, the afterworld. I think some versions, instead of secret places, have innermost places or innermost rooms. The idea, it seems to be, in their desire to communicate with the dead, which is also borne out by Isaiah chapter 8, that uh, if they go to sleep in these places, if they go to these certain hot spots, that if they do happen to have any dreams, their dreams will take on special significance because of where they're at, and it will reveal something about the future or something that they need to know rather than relying on what God has already said in his word, which is chapter 8 and verse 20. They eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meats. Now, in the context, all I can gather is that this has something to do with their idolatrous worship. It's the pagan practices around them. There's nothing inerrantly wrong with pigs. The Lord is going to teach Peter that he's cleansed all meats and he's free to eat pork. There's nothing immoral from the beginning with pigs. It's wrong because God said it was wrong. But they've decided they will do it their way, and they're going to eat pig's flesh, and they're going to partake, partake of these broths with tainted meats because it seems to produce a certain effect, whether it's real or imagined. It's what they want. They disregard what God has said to do. We, our, the American church is not just the American church, and it's not every church. But there are whole churches, whole denominations that feel very confident and free to change what God has said about morality, right and wrong, and sexuality, and home, and society. We feel so free to change that, and we think we've advanced on what God has said. We think we've improved upon the plan. We've no more improved upon what God has said about morality, and marriage, and sexuality, than what these Israelites who decide they can eat pig's flesh with no consequence. It doesn't work like that. Who say, which is the most amazing statement of all, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I'm too holy for you. In all that they've changed, they think they've made themselves more holy and that they're in a better position than you are. Charles Spurgeon has a lot to say about that because he preaches a whole message on that concept, but we don't have time for Spurgeon. An announcement for judgment necessarily follows. In light of this is his people, who he's stretching his arms out to, in light of that, in light of their sin, an announcement of judgment follows. Verse 5, the second part of verse 5, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Now if you turn to Leviticus, the first three chapters, just right off the bat, I forget now how many times I counted it, I think there was at least like eight times in the first three chapters of Leviticus where the people are offering a, if they offer a prescribed sacrifice, it's described as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's a pleasing aroma. And the Lord looks at his people in Isaiah and he says, it's smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. This isn't pleasing at all to me. He's not... He's not entertained or pleased by it in any... It's the opposite of what was required in Leviticus. Behold, 
It is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Now, Again, we've got one of these famous beholds in Isaiah, which really is meant to signal attention, to draw your attention to something. What should we? What is uh, meant to be emphasized by that behold? Behold, it's written. In other words, I put it in writing. It's a guarantee. You can count on the fact I'm going to repay. There is judgment falling. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. It's in writing. God's saying, take it to the bank. It's settled. But then he gives an assurance. He's not only the Lord of judgment, he's also the Lord of salvation. These verses aren't on the screen. I'll have to read them to you. Verses 8 to 10. They go like this. You can kind of tell it's, a, it's kind of a, a uh, what do I say? It's a, it's a little bit of a break because it starts off with the, the, new, the new introduction. Thus says the Lord. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and from Judah possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be like become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a, pla- a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But then it goes on. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and mix cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. They're worshiping, in this case, you've got a remnant. You've got a, a few grapes that there's, there's, there's faith in those grapes. There's people who are trusting God in spite of all the circumstances. And God says, I'm not going to destroy them. They're my people. There, there's always that remnant according to grace. But then it turns right around again in verses 11 and 12. But to those that forsake... He's also the Lord of judgment. He is the Lord of salvation. He's also the Lord of judgment. And there are two gods that they're worshiping there are called fortune and destiny. One of the things I discovered, it was actually at a funeral many years ago, but where there is an absence of biblical faith, there is a marked increase in superstition. I hear some of the weirdest superstitious stories about somebody or signs that they think they get from heaven after somebody has died where there's an absence of faith. Because there's no assurance in what God has said about righteousness and how you achieve uh, forgiveness of sins and all. So there's all this superstition, pennies from heaven, bluebirds, and who knows whatever else. And that's what these people in verses 11 and 12 are worshiping. And then in verses 13 to 16, you've got the two groups juxtaposed. There's a clear distinction between those two groups. It reads like this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, 
but ye shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. Literally, that's the God of amen. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of amen, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Now, what takes place in those last few verses, the two groups, back and forth? You're going to see this play out again when we get into chapter 66. And uh, there's some significance to that, which we'll save until we get to 66. But having said all this, what do you have by way of comments or questions? Verses 1 to 16. Carrie. And there's, a, there's, I mean, there's different categories. Some Jews don't care. Some Israelites don't care. I mean, they know he's angry. They know he's jealous. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my life. It seems to be without consequence. So some just don't care. Some probably are ignorant. They're just unaware. Uh, and some know he's a jealous God. And like Isaiah, they're grieving. Like, what is happening? Like, how can God keep all of his purposes of redemption for Israel in light of all of our sin? How can we be saved in light of our sin? That's his dilemma. So there's, there's and by the way, speaking of God's emotions or his affections, which uh, I came across a second article that is really quite good other than one word, which I actually drew a line through. I wish he hadn't used one word. But uh, on the back table... I didn't make a whole lot of copies, so if, if you don't get a copy and you're interested, I'll just put more out there. If you ask me, it'll take me just a minute to run extras. But this is an article, four-page article entitled, Does God Really Feel? Like, what does it mean, does God feel, have affections or feelings? Uh, I thought the two authors of this did a good job barring one word. Anybody else have a thought or comment? What a powerful passage of Scripture. What a powerful response. Isaiah is pleading for Israel. And the Lord says, I'm pleading for Israel too. I stretch out my hands to Israel. But their day hasn't come yet. But God's plan of redemption is right on track. Right on track. Let's uh, stand and be dismissed in prayer.